following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. We're going to spend most of our time today in Luke chapter 22. But as I've already told you, we're going to bounce around a little bit. So, so prepare yourselves. I have a question for you. Are there, are there any meals from your past that you can remember. And I, I, I'm talking about remember vividly, okay? And think about that just for a moment. Some meals that you remember. And, and the question I have for you, as you're kind of pondering that, is why? Why do you remember them? Some of them are for kind of odd reasons. I, I remember, um, of all things, the, it was, the year was 1992, and my sister graduated from Missouri Southern and Ozark Christian College at the same time. And um, we were there celebrating her graduation. I was excited because we ate at Shoney's. I mean, that was kind of a big deal when I was a kid. Shoney's. I don't even, do they even have Shoney's anymore? Are you serious? They really do? Down south. Okay. Okay, well, in Joplin, Missouri, they used to have one. Not anymore. And we were there, and we were eating brunch, and it was... Latter part of the morning, and I ate scrambled eggs. You know I remember that? Because the day before I got braces, and I couldn't eat the bacon. I mean, I literally wanted to take that bacon and squeeze the grease into my mouth. That's how much I wanted that bacon, and I could not do it. And my daughter, I feel her pain, because she's got braces, just got them a couple days ago. Same boat right now, same boat. I remember that. Like I said, sometimes they're for odd reasons. Now, other times they're for reasons a little more significant. I remember what I ate. The night that I met my wife, Donna, we went on a blind double date with Mike and Darby, went out to eat up in Independence, and I ate lasagna. I ate lasagna. I, I, will, I will never, ever forget. And it wasn't even the best lasagna, but I will never, ever forget that. I remember something else, our wedding day. Donna and I ate supper together that evening, I ate a chicken strip salad in Joplin, Missouri at the Rib Crib. And you're like, how in the world can you eat chicken strip salad at the rib crib. Sorry, it's just what I wanted to do, all right? Went from there, went to Walmart and got some groceries for, for the rest of the week. And then we went to Big Cedar Lodge over in, near Springfield. And we went going to the honeymoon cabin. Guys, you know how warm it was that day? It rained four inches that morning. By the time our wedding started, the sun was shining. It was in the 90s and the humidity was 256%. All right? We walked into the honeymoon cabin, and it was 92 degrees. The air conditioner was froze up. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I remember all of these things. You see, our most memorable meals from our past are memorable because of context, because of what is going on at the time. We all have memorable meals. Perhaps some of you have even memorialized some of them to an extent. In other words, on a particular day of the year, you eat this. It's just what you do, whether it be Christmas Eve or maybe it be 4th of July. I don't know. It's just what you and your family do because you've always done it, and there's a reason for it. That means you've memorialized it. I will tell you this. When it comes to a meal, and memorializing it, there is none that compares to what we call the Last Supper. The Last Supper of Jesus 
Christ. Last week, we opened up this subject, and it's kind of a churchy word. We talked about sacraments, and last week, there's really only two sacraments within the church, baptism and communion. And what we looked at last week is the fact that sacraments, first and foremost of all, are instituted by Christ himself. As I said, last week we looked at baptism. This week we will look at communion. And we need to understand something. This is so important for us today. We do this each week. It is the center of the first day of the week. Guys, everything else that we will do today, not just in this service, but the rest of the day, will pale in comparison to what we do in our time of communion. We do this each week simply because of the practice of the church in Acts. We are told in Acts chapter 20 verse 7, Paul is writing about, Luke is writing about Paul, and they met the first day of the week to break bread. Interestingly enough, another apostle, or another Bible writer, gospel writer, the apostle John he called it, he, he, he didn't call it the first day of the week. In Revelation chapter 1, he kind of named it the Lord's Day. And let me tell you something. There is nowhere in our New Testament where communion on that Lord's Day, on that first of the day of the week, is commanded. You, you, you won't find that. We have simply chosen, like many other churches, to adopt it as a practice because that is what the church in Acts did. It's not commanded, but I will tell you there are some things commanded about communion. The how of communion is commanded. So we're just going to start at the very beginning of this, okay? The very beginning. We see that the Last Supper, we call it, in the upper room between Jesus and his very closest of followers is recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'd think I'd say John, but I will not because he did not record it. Um, The Apostle Paul recorded it in 1 Corinthians, Um, Now, possibly John figured he had covered enough of this in John chapter 10 when Jesus preached that sermon that he is the bread of life. So where we are going to look specifically is in Luke. That's what we are going to look at. But before we dive into the passage, there's something that we need to understand about the mindset of the Mideastern Jew of that day, and to an extent still today. For Jews, the eating of a meal together is a sacred event. You understand that? It is a sacred event. It is to to sit down and break bread together is a declaration of kinship. Do you you understand? Like, like we are family. That's what it means. I, I don't know if we quite go to those links with our meals, but the Jew would. Now, maybe you have you have the practice of praying before you eat. I hope so. Uh, as a family, that's a great practice to have. Um, they did this as well. But their prayer was more than just a giving of thanks for what God has provided. That was a part of it. But for the Jew, the blessing of the meal was inviting God to be present at the table as a participant. You see the difference there. By blessing the meal, it is asking God be here with us as we share as family together in this meal. So all of that in the back of our minds, let's turn to Luke chapter 22 and see what we find. We're going to begin in verse 14. And this is what it says. Jesus and his disciples are in the upper room in Jerusalem. 
It says this, when the hour had come, he, Jesus, reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat I shall never again eat eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and, catch this, given thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now catch verse 20. We see this cup showing up again. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, I already told you. That for the Jew, eating of a meal together with others is a sacred event. There was no more sacred of Jewish meals than the Passover meal. It was instituted by God amongst his people before they left Egypt back in the book of Exodus. We'll jump into there here in just a little bit. There's nothing more sacred than it. Jesus' last supper with his closest followers before the cross, that is why they were eating. They were celebrating the Passover. Everything about this meal, even to the seasoning that they used, was symbolic. So understand that. Everything they did, everything that they said during this meal had a purpose. We're going to focus on the wine and the bread. And yes, it wasn't grape juice, it was wine. Now typically, the Palestinian wine was one part wine up to two to three parts water. But it was, it was wine. And interestingly enough, I kind of highlighted it a little bit there in Luke 22, that, that Luke mentions two cups of wine. Does that kind of throw you off when you read that? It's like, okay, Jesus has the cup, he gives thanks for it, shares it, goes to the bread, goes back to the cup. Now, if you are an organized person when it comes to meals, grandmas, okay, um, then, then this is this is buggy a little bit. Okay, why do you do the cup, go to the bread, go back to the cup? All right, I mean, why, why didn't he just do the bread, then the cup, or the cup, then the bread? What is he, what's, the, what's the deal? You need to know a little bit of what's taking place here. Luke mentions two cups. There were actually four cups that were used in a Passover meal celebration. Four cups. All right, if you're a note taker, here you go. Get your pens and your pencils ready. We have to look to Exodus chapter 6 to see the significance of these four cups. As I told you, everything that took place in this meal was symbolic. And these four cups got tied into what we find in Exodus chapter 6. If you know your Bible history, you understand that Exodus chapter 6 is before even the first plague in Egypt. It's before the Exodus takes place. Moses shows up tells the people what God is going to do for them, but it has not happened yet. And you find this in Exodus chapter 6. And every cup, these four cups in this meal, represents a part of God's declaration to his people. Cup number one. Here you go. Cup number one. This is the scripture in God's declaration that lines up. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. It's cup number one. Cup number two. I will free you from being slaves to them. 
Cup number three. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And cup number four. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. So four cups. Cup number one didn't even make it into the upper room. Most likely, this is the way they practice this. You see, the upper room means that there's a lower room, okay? You got to have a lower room in order to have an upper room. And when Jesus and his band of Mary followers came into the building, came into the home before they went to the upper room, typically there were, I love this word, hors d'oeuvres served. Has anybody ever been to a restaurant? Eddie, you already said in the first service, and I still don't believe you, okay? Has, has anybody ever been to a restaurant where instead of appetizers on the menu, it says hors d'oeuvres? Anybody? See, Eddie? Eddie says he did. You don't get that at Chili's, Eddie. I promise you, all right? All right. They had hors d'oeuvres, and as you would come into the home, you would have the first cup with the hors d'oeuvres, and then they would go upstairs. And you're like, preacher, why in the world are you telling this? There's a reason why. That means these two cups that Luke mentions are cup number two and cup number three. Some, some people believe that Jesus abstained completely from using cup number four. What was that one? God's presence amongst his people. Why would Jesus not use that one? More on that later. Hopefully I remember to bring that back up again. Cups two and three are attached very strongly to salvation talk. When I look at number two up here and number three, there are two words that jump out to me. One is free or freedom. Number three, redemption. These are the cups that Jesus uses in talking with his disciples and in commemorating what we call communion. You know the fancy name uh, for communion? is Eucharist. It's kind of the fancy name for communion. As I kind of highlighted when I read through verses 14 through 20, Jesus gave thanks repeatedly during this meal. He continually gave thanks. Eucharist, that word, we don't use that word really, here, um, but it, it comes from the Greek word eucharisteo, right? And it means this, to give thanks. Guys, before we move on anywhere else when it comes to communion, we must see what is at the core of the Lord's Supper of communion, and it's this, gratitude, thanksgiving, telling God, thank you for what he has done for us. These cups two and three representing the salvation work of God, freedom and redemption. How are we freed? We are freed by the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The bread and the fruit of the vine, the wine, represent his body and his blood. You see, Passover for the Jew was a celebration of the Exodus. It was looking back to see what God had done for Israel and his people. But Jesus' sacrifice would be the means of a new exodus, a new freedom, a new redemption. Speaking of new, look back at verse 20. 
Just look back at this, guys, and understand the significance of what Jesus is saying here. Verse 20, it says this, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Only two times in Scripture before this is blood tied with the covenant. And a covenant is the sanctioning of a promise between people. The covenant of God for his people. Only two other times do we see covenant tied with blood. One of them is in Zechariah. And Zechariah is just speaking about the first. And the first one comes from Exodus. Now you don't have to turn there. It will be on the screen behind me. If you'd like to, you can. Exodus chapter 24. Much else is going on from our Exodus 6, all right? A lot has taken place. The Exodus has taken place. God has led his people out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 24, we find out something else. The law has been given. And it is a new time for God's people. And this is the first time ever in Scripture we see covenant, one of God's promises, and the way that he instills that promise tied with blood comes in verse 8 of chapter 24. And this is going to sound a little strange to us. I mean, it is. We don't think in these terms. I'm going to read it for you. Exodus 24, 8. So Moses took the blood and he did what with it? He sprinkled it on the people. Okay. How many of you would be excited about the prospect of next Sunday, us sacrificing, you know, maybe not tens of hundreds of thousands of animals, but up two or three up here, and then take that blood and I throw it on you? With, I mean, does that sound like fun? I mean, does it sound like, it sounds like a KISS concert. That's what it sounds like. Not a church service. I mean, seriously, all right? I mean, what is, what is, what is going on here? Let's, let's look at it again. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Now, fortunately for us, so many years later, we have an author who describes this and explains it a little bit better for us. Leave Exodus, and if you want to turn there, turn to near the end of the Bible, turn to Hebrews. Hebrews was written for Jewish people. That's why it's entitled Hebrews. But not just any Jewish people, these were Jewish believers. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 22, and our writer talks to us about the purpose of blood and covenants. This is what he says. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I appreciate so much that a number of years ago, Lisa Ellis gave me um, an audio study um, from Ray Vanderland, who is, who you've heard me talk about him a number of times before. He's a, he's a, not just a Greek and Hebrew scholar, he's a, he's a scholar of Hebrew culture, okay? Modern as well as ancient. 
And, and he talks a little bit about the mindset of, of, of ancient Israelites and ancient Hebrews that makes things a little bit more clear for us. He, he says this in his, in his writings. He says that no real Hebrew, no real Jew actually believed the blood of bulls and goats made them holy. After all, how can the blood of an animal make a person who has sinned holy? He says, what they do by the shedding of that blood is cry out to God to remember his promise that God would redeem his people, that God would shed blood so that his people could be redeemed. And when blood was shed in the temple so many years ago, it was people crying out to God, God, remember your promise. What I mean by this is all of that blood of the Old Testament pointed towards this new covenant in my blood. It pointed toward the blood of Jesus. It's his blood that would save people. His blood does cleanse. It is amazing to me what Jesus did and what he memorialized for us. Jesus is the only one to walk in this world and live perfectly. He lived without sin. And yet, Jesus did not memorialize his life. Jesus performed miracles. Credible, amazing miracles. He told, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. He told a storm to stop and it listened to him. All right? We're talking incredible, miraculous power. Yet Jesus does not memorialize his miracles. Jesus was the most powerful teacher this world has ever seen. Even those who are not followers of Jesus cannot get away from the fact that the Sermon on the Mount, which is our Matthews 5 through 7, if you put that into, if people would actually live out the Sermon on the Mount and you put that into place in any civilization, that civilization will prosper. Best teacher ever, and yet Jesus did not memorialize his teaching. What did Jesus memorialize? His death. His death. Yeah, communion is important, folks. And I am so glad, and you can turn here if you'd like. I'd, I'd recommend that you do so. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm so glad that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke were not the only three who wrote and talked about the Last Supper, what we call communion. I'm so glad that Paul did as well, and we find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You know why I am glad of that? Because Paul tells us what to do with this memorialization. Paul tells us what to do and how to do communion. I don't know about you, but I'm a follow-the-direction guy. When I get something from, from Amazon or eBay, I don't throw the instructions away. I know some of you guys, I'm not a real man because I actually read the instructions to put it together. I'm not smart enough to do it without the instructions, okay? I'm a how-to guy. Tell me how to do it. So I really, really like 1 Corinthians 11, beginning with verse 23. So let's read it together. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, there's that given thanks again, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Here's something new. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Did you know and understand that there are good and bad consequences to the Lord's Supper? If I do it right, good consequences. If I do it wrong, bad consequences. For this reason, I think we better look very closely at what we're doing when we share in communion. There's a reason why JB and myself have often said from up here on a particular, any particular, any given Sunday, if you cannot get your mind and your heart where it needs to be in our time of communion, that's okay. Just take that cup home with you and do it another time today. Do not do this without being in the right frame of mind. So how do we do it right? I love the fact that we have Paul writing here because I told you I like instructions and he gives us the how-to. So if you're a how-to person as well, get your pens ready, all right? Because we're gonna look at the how-to of communion. The outlook, if you will, of communion. When we partake in communion, the first thing we do is we look backward. Understand that. We look backward toward the death of Jesus Christ. Understanding without that shed blood, we have no hope. None. It is only by and through the blood of Jesus Christ that when the Father sees us, he sees people who are holy. So when we come to our time of communion, we look backward, thanking Jesus for his sacrifice. But that's not all we do. We look forward. Remember that fourth cup? Remember that fourth cup? I told you, I hope I don't forget it. Well, who knows? I didn't forget it. The fourth cup, about the presence of God. Understand something, folks. When we share in communion, a little bit more about this here in just a second, is a preview of something to come. And we will share in something much more extravagant one day in the presence of who? In the presence of God. Do you understand this? That we don't just look back where we look forward knowing that we will live an eternity in the glorious presence of God. Not because we deserve to be there, but because we have been made worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
We look backward. We look forward. All made possible by the sacrifice of Jesus. But that's not all of it. Paul gets into a little bit more here. If you look at what's taking place in 1 Corinthians when he writes this about communion, it's all about unity. When we come to communion, we look outward. What I mean by that is we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, we're just a small part of the greater body of Jesus. People throughout our county, throughout our state, our nation, our world, who are meeting as I speak, celebrating the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But understand something, folks. When we share in communion, we do it as family. Tied together by the blood of Jesus. It's so sad that the church is supposed to be the collected body of Christ is so divided over something as unifying as communion. We can divide over anything. It is to be Unifying. So we look outward amongst our family in Christ. And finally, according to Paul, at the bidding of the Holy Spirit, we look inward. He says we examine ourselves. What does that even mean? <laughs> Examining myself, this is what it means for me. It's, it's, asking, it's asking God to take his scalpel of the Holy Spirit and his word and remove from me the shame that is there. The reason I personally do this every week is because I need it every week. When I look back on the week and I'm like, and I messed up right there. Father, I'm sorry. It's an examination of self. We know from Scripture that an examination of self is what prods us to change and to grow in Christ. So when we come to our time of communion, we look backward, we look forward, we look outward, we look inward. This is how communion is done right, and every bit of that is enveloped in this. Thank you. God, thank you. I don't deserve this. I don't. I deserve to be on the cross. I deserve to spend an eternity away from you. That's what I deserve. But thank you that that is not my future because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can we ever say it enough? Brothers and sisters, that's communion. There is nothing this week we will do that is more important than what we're going to share in in just a few moments.